People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. Now it is this week that it's the 109th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. She left Southampton on the 10th of April, hit the iceberg on the 14th, and sank in the early hours of the 15th. Someone who is fascinated with the Titanic, as indeed I am, is the painter Jeremy Day, who you may remember a few weeks ago I chatted to on People of Note about the various paintings he does, for example, for the Ship Society here in Cape Town, beautiful paintings of ships and a host of other things. So, Jeremy, it's a warm welcome back on a slightly different topic, I suppose. Thank you, Rodney. It's a pleasure to be here again. (laughs) We're going to talk about conspiracy theories, really, because there's nothing as fun as a conspiracy theory, I often think. That's right. And there are wonderful ones surrounding the Titanic, so that's what we've decided to do. But, Jeremy, one of the things that um, amazed me when I saw your notes was that you're saying for over 100 years the interest in the story of the Titanic has continued unabated, but that the genesis of the incident goes back 20,000 years. How on earth do you work that out? Well, I reckon that the iceberg is the, the main character here or the hero as we say or the bad the, the bad guy. the villain the <laughs> villain the amongst bad. all the uh, elements of the story and it started over 20,000 years ago with snowflakes falling over greenland and this continued for centuries until about the time of tutankhamun about 1300 bc mm-hmm. when the accumulated snowflakes had been compacted into a solid ice glacier filling one of the huge southwestern fjords of Greenland. This glacier slowly moves towards the west coast of Greenland at between a meter to a few hundred meters per year. It's about six kilometers wide and at its steepest about the height of a 23-story building. We forget that icebergs can actually be that big because we only see famously the tip of the iceberg, as they say. That's right. So around 1908, meteorologists mentioned that a moderately warm and wet year over Greenland produced enhanced snow accumulation. They believed that water gradually soaking through cracks in the ice sheet and this accumulated around its margins which probably led to an enhanced short-term glacier sliding with resulting enhanced carving. Carving being the term used for sections of ice breaking off the glacier and plunging into the sea. Right, right. So in about 1909, a massive chunk of this iceberg breaks off and plunges into Baffin Bay, becoming a huge iceberg about two kilometers in width. This estimated size was determined by meteorologists who stated that the size of the iceberg that was hit by the Titanic would have had to be this size originally to survive the melting process over three years until its unfortunate rendezvous with the Titanic. More or less at the same time of the carving, the keel of a superliner has just been laid at Belfast shipping yard of Holland and Wolf, designated Contract 401, 
and which would later be launched as the Titanic. Now this massive iceberg is carried by the West Greenland current slowly northwards until this current is deflected south by the northern Canadian coast, forming the Labrador current which delivers the iceberg to the warm Gulf Stream. A total journey of about 5,000 kilometers over three years, during which time the size has been greatly diminished from its original width of two kilometers due to melting. It must be said that only about 2% of icebergs survive until they reach latitude 45 degrees north, one of the busiest sea routes in the Atlantic. Indeed, the famous sort of transatlantic crossing 45 degrees north. Yes, that's quite right. Now, on board, People can smell the presence of icebergs. Due to the organic impurities the ice picks up on its relentless trip down to the sea, gradually released as the ice melts. Is that true, that you can actually smell an iceberg? Yes, yes. Uh, it because is it's recorded, rotting in a sense. Yes, it is recorded by people on board ship that they can smell the presence of icebergs. So... About a month or so after the brush with the Titanic, the notorious iceberg would reduce to a dash of unsalted water in the Atlantic Ocean, <laughs> leaving behind a tragic incident that still echoes around the world over a hundred years later. Immensely so. Gosh, they say maybe the Titanic has never actually sunk because there are all these things going on forever. She keeps on sailing. Yes, she does. Yes. You saw the film, didn't you, A Night to Remember? Yes, I saw that originally in the Scala Theatre in Claremont. And so, for many years, the music played while the patrons left was Humoresque by Dvorak, which was probably one of the pieces of music in the repertoire of Titanic band leader Wallace Hartley. Well, I've got a CD here, and this is our first choice of music, isn't it, Jeremy? Called, yes. and the band played on, music played on the Titanic by the Salon group, E Salonisti, because the band on the Titanic was a Salon ensemble. So here is the Salon version of Dvorak's Humoresque in what it probably sounded like on those glorious decks of the Titanic.
The Humoresque by Dvorak, played there by the Salon group East Salonisti on their CD called And the Band Played On, music played on the Titanic, probably the sort of sound the passengers heard. And we're talking about the Titanic because this week marks the 109th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. And with me is Jeremy Day. I think I can safely say, Jeremy, is fascinated with the Titanic. And we're considering some conspiracy theories. And now the course of events, let's go there, Jeremy, leading to plans for White Star's three Olympic class liners. That's the Olympic, Titanic and Britannica. And apparently an unlikely individual was arguably the earliest influence leading up to the creation of the Titanic. Queen Victoria's grandson, Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, of all people. Yes, that's right, Rodney. In fact, in the 1890s, as part of the royal family, Willem was always invited to Britain's naval reviews at Spithead, where he was continually reminded by his uncle, the Prince of Wales, who later became King Edward VII, who continually boasted how England had the world's most powerful navy and was also the leading shipbuilder. And so frustrated by this, the petulant Wilhelm decided he wanted to have a navy like this as well. So he embarked on a massive expansion of Germany's navy, and this influenced another area, Germany's merchant marine fleets. In 1897, the launch of the German liner Kaiser Wilhelm de Grosse signals the beginning of the four-funnel liner era. Now, social historians have suggested that the emigrant trade of the early 20th century believed that the more funnels, the better and safer the ship. Now, the lucrative North Atlantic immigrant trade was targeted by all the major shipping companies, and building ships with four funnels was one way of attracting this business, in spite of the fact that some of them, as in the case of the Titanic, had a dummy fourth yes. funnel. Famously a dummy funnel, that's right. And then four similar German liners follow, and Germany captures the important blue ribbon, the coveted award for the fastest Atlantic crossing. Understandably, the Germans bask in the publicity, as Britain had held this trophy for the previous 44 years. A long time, gosh, yes. yes. Then, in 1906, White Star Line's bitter rival, Cunard, launches the four stackers Lusitania, then Mauritania. Both ships are fitted with economical and smooth-running steam turbines, a departure from the ubiquitous reciprocating engines and are also the first liners having four propellers instead of two. Then in 1907, Lusitania, then Mauritania, wrests the blue ribbon from the Germans and White Star CEO Bruce Ismay, galled by the massive publicity, is determined to capture back the White Star Line's leading status. Then it would have been interesting to be a fly on the wall at a dinner at shipbuilder Lord Pirie's London mansion when he and Ismay indulged in their concept of three liners that would be 50% bigger in gross tonnage than Lusitania and Mauritania. Piri was the CEO of Harland & Wolf, the world's largest shipbuilder at the time and the builder of all but one of the White Star liners. Ismay's aim was to challenge Cunard, not in terms of speed, but in sheer size, accommodation and facilities. Lord Piri's aim, however was to convince Ismay and J.P. Morgan to build more ships because Harland and Wolf was heading for financial straits. <laughs> it sounds like quite a, um, a situation that was developing. 
Well, there was lots of skullduggery in those days, I'm sure, I, I believe. I'm sure. The enormously wealthy American J.P. Morgan owned several shipping companies comprising 120 ships and had purchased White Star Line from Ismay for £10 million in 1902, and this for him was the icing on the cake. So to make this concept reality, huge extensions would need to be made to the shipbuilding facilities at Holland and Wolfe, including a new dry dock to accept these liners, as well as dredging Southampton's berth 44 to a depth of 40 feet at low tide, and deeper channels in the river test beyond. Similarly in New York, quayside facilities at Pier 59 would need to be lengthened. We tend to forget, don't we, Jeremy, that... um they build these huge ships, but then they've got to dredge and do sort of things at the harbours to accommodate them, especially the rivers. And so this dredging must have been terribly important. Well, another important fact is that the Thompson Dry Dock in Belfast was the only dry dock that could accommodate these liners. Oh. So if she had a major problem in New York, they had to get back to Belfast. Yes, exactly. All right, well, let's pause for a moment in this rather fascinating story and listen to another piece of music. And here we have Debussy's Claire de Lune, which you've chosen, Jeremy. Yes, this music reminds me of False Bay, and I think it, it sort of embedded in my brain a, a view of the Red Roman lighthouse and a nice calm sea. And I always associate Claire de Lune with this image of False Bay.
Well, I suppose one can imagine a calm sea with the moon there. Claire de Lune by Debussy, played by Balazzocle, another choice of my guest, Jeremy Day, talking about the Titanic. And we've now covered how it came into being, in a sense. But now, Jeremy, the interesting part, and lots of interesting stories here, the actual building of the Titanic, because it needed a huge gantry, didn't it? to be that's, erected for its construction. Yes, that's quite right. And this was constructed by a company called William Arrell & Co., a Scottish firm also responsible for the Forth Bridge and London's Tower Bridge. Gosh, they knew what they were doing <laughs> with those two things. And those are iconic uh, Very buildings so. still existing today. And Olympic and Titanic are to be built side by side, with work commencing on contract 400 first, followed by contract 401 shortly thereafter, with the massive big gantry covering both of them. 401 was the Titanic, wasn't it? That's right. 400 was the Olympic. That's right. So the keel plates of Titanic's older sister, Olympic, are laid on the 16th of December 1908. And then on the 30th of March 1909, the keel is laid for Titanic. A little later, on the 20th of October... 1910, three million rivets and 1.5 million pounds later, Olympic is launched, painted in white for the advantage of photographers. On the 31st of May 1911, the Titanic is launched. Unlike in the movie A Night to Remember, no speeches are made and champagne is not broken on the bow. Yes, that's an interesting fact that I think a lot of people don't realize, that that didn't happen with the Titanic. That's right. Maybe it was an omen, who knows. Well, I think White Star launches were much more low-key events. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. Yet, on the same day, Olympic sets off on her first voyage from Belfast, where thousands of onlookers witnessed both events, done simultaneously for maximum publicity. It must be said, however, that the work on ships at Holland and Wolf was difficult and dangerous. And for the 15,000 workers, conditions were rudimentary at best, with no hard hats or protective gloves for machine operators. And unfortunately, 246 injuries and nine deaths were recorded due to falling objects and machinery accidents. The steel in her construction was deemed good for the day. However, it is recorded that extreme cold would make the steel brittle. Now, both ships have triple screws, the centre one being driven by a steam turbine fed by the exhaust steam from the reciprocating engines on either side. These ships are built with double-bottomed hulls and 16 watertight compartments from stem to stern, each with interconnecting watertight doors that can be controlled, that is, opened and closed, from the bridge by the flick of a switch. The ship will stay afloat with any four of these compartments flooded. So with these specifications, many claim this mechanism makes these ships unsinkable. We know that that <laughs> didn't work. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> and they're also the world's largest man-made moving object. Oh, yes, that's a thought, yeah. Now, in April 1912... Titanic is completed and prepared for her trials. She achieves a speed of 20 knots and effects a dead stop from the speed at 850 yards, only three times her length, which actually is quite impressive. All the necessary tests are completed. She receives her seaworthy certificate from Mr. Carruthers of the Board of Trade and immediately steams to Southampton to commence her maiden voyage, arriving at midnight on the 3rd of April at high water. 
She is met by five tugs who carefully rotate her and edge her backwards to berth 44. Why did they do that? Why edge her backwards? Well, because her departure was scheduled to take place at low tide, making it far more tricky to rotate her. Oh, right. Especially since new channels had to be dredged in the river test to accommodate the liner's extra draft. Now, don't be fooled. Draft is not an extra consignment of beer. <laughs> but the term used for the depth of the lowest point of the ship underwater. 10th of April has arrived. And that is sailing day. The world's most famous maiden voyage is about to commence. An examination of the passenger lists reveals a fascinating cross-section of travellers from one of the richest men in the world to the poorest migrants seeking a fresh start. And ticket prices echo the spectrum as well. £2 for the cheapest, up to £870 for the most expensive. Which would have been a lot of money in those days, in 1912. 12 noon. Captain Smith gives the order to sound the ship's horns and the lines are cast off. The giant is eased from her key and turning her bow downstream, the ship's telegraph rings down to start the ship's propellers turning. At first stemming the incoming tide, Titanic picks up speed down Southampton water, but trouble is only seconds away. Yes, as we're about to find out. But now I'm interested in your next choice at this point, Jeremy. Vaughan Williams' The Lark Ascending. I've always loved Rafe Vaughan Williams' music because it reminds me of the sea. Oh, and okay. so that's why I've included this one. He has a lovely way of producing music, which is so soft on the ears, and it actually reminds me of a calm, flat sea. Well, this is The Lark Ascending, which is hugely popular, by the way, and we're not going to be able to listen to it all, unfortunately, because I want to hear more of what you're going to say. But let's hear part of The Lark Ascending by Vaughan Williams.
Well, sadly, we have to leave that rather beautiful, serene piece of music, The Lark Ascending, by Rafe Vaughan-Williams, the solo violinist there, Barry Griffiths, with the Royal Philharmonic, conducted by Andre Previn. We're talking about the Titanic. 109 years ago this week was that great drama when the Titanic sank on the 14th, hit the iceberg on the 14th of April. Jeremy Day is with me who paints ships, I mean paintings of ships, as opposed to painting ships in the dry dock, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> and Jeremy is fascinated by some theories to do with this accident. And now, I said, well, you said just before that, trouble was only seconds away as the Titanic pulled out into the mainstream. That's right, Rodney. Um, and for the benefit of some listeners, the marine term port is for left and starboard is right. At the time of the departure of Titanic, Southampton was recovering from a crippling coal strike, so much so that increased numbers of ships had accumulated and had to be berthed side by side until coal could be obtained. Now, Titanic was able to have coal supplied by other ships affiliated to the White Star Line, thanks to J.P. Morgan, and these ships were mostly idle in Southampton. Olympic had brought an extra load of coal from New York on a previous crossing, and was transferred to Titanic's bunkers, a tiresome and filthy process. So now, as I mentioned before, Titanic starts picking up speed. She is obliged to follow the dredge channel in the River Test, especially since it is low tide, and this means she will edge closer to the double-berthed ships Oceanic and New York. Now, a build-up of water from her propellers surges under these double-berth liners, causing both to bob up and down. This is also known as the canal effect, putting immense strain on their mooring lines. Now, the rear ones snap on the liner New York, which starts moving out on a collision course with the passing Titanic. <laughs> Gosh, can you imagine the panic at that <laughs> moment? Yeah. At this stage, Titanic is alongside New York, and pilot Captain Boyer orders engines reversed. Meanwhile, <laughs> Captain Gale on the tug Vulcan on Titanic's port quarter, that is the left rear section of Titanic, sees the situation developing in front of him, taking action by attaching a line to the stern of the New York, halting her collision course with Titanic with only four feet to spare. That's unbelievable. Four feet with those huge ships. Well, think about it. If they had collided, maybe history would have changed. <laughs> That's true, because Titanic wouldn't have been able to sail. That's quite right. Gosh. Anyway, so, so now what happened? The so Titanic what, had stopped. Yes. At this stage, Titanic has stopped and has started to reverse. Now, on board the Titanic, one of the first-class passengers, Mrs. Harris, the wife of an impresario, is confronted by a stranger who says to her, this is a bad omen. Do you love life, he asks, because if you do, you will get off the ship at Cherbourg, and that's what I will be doing. After the liner New York is moved and secured to a safe berth, as well as an hour's delay, Titanic proceeds to Cherbourg, France, for her first port of call. Concern is expressed by Titanic's lookouts because they have not been issued with binoculars. Another so-called bad omen occurs as the liner leaves this, its second port of call, Queenstown Island, when an inquisitive stoker had climbed up the inside of Titanic's rear funnel, the dummy funnel, and peered out at the view with his blackened face. 
What a, what a thing to do. <laughs> People close by gasped, and one individual was heard saying, that is surely the black spectre of death. Oh, my goodness. Once again, concern is expressed by the absence of binoculars by the lookouts. As it's time. amazing that they didn't have binoculars. It's one of the amazing things for me about this whole story. It's just another element in this ongoing saga of the Titanic, which unfortunately we won't be able to talk about here. And Titanic now sails off into the broad expanse of the Atlantic, never to return. On the evening of 14th of April, Titanic hits an iceberg and after remaining afloat for two and a half hours, is swallowed by the Atlantic in the early hours of the 15th in a flat sea under a moonless starlit sky. When James Cameron filmed the Titanic movie in the late 90s, he originally approached Enya to compose the music. After declining, he recruited James Horner, who composed some of the tracks with Enya in mind. And in fact, Enya is our next choice, isn't it? And you've chosen this for a reason, this particular Enya track. Yes, it's called Shepherd Moons. And it's during the movie that all the sound is taken out and it's just this poignant sound of this tune as the lifeboats are descending the 70 feet down to the black water and one can sort of almost feel the sensation of those in the lifeboat mm -hmm. wondering why they're here and doing this which is due to no cause of their own and leaving behind loved ones and embarking on a trip that has they had no idea where they were going or what and was going had, to happen they next. Had no, the they had no idea of what the future would hold for them. Here's Enya.
Well, that's the sound of Enya, Shepherd Moons, off her CD called Paint the Sky with Stars. Right, on we go, because now comes the interesting part, now that we've discovered how the Titanic came into being and eventually set sail. But there are now a number of theories, and this is what intrigues me mostly. Jeremy Day, my guest on People of Note this week. Yes, the, soon after the Titanic sank, theories began circulating that she was built with inferior materials, especially after the third sister ship, the Britannic, is lost in 1916. And now there's a South African connection here. Uh, Rodney, you will remember Peter Mello. The oh, former, yes, very well, gosh. From the English service, yes, Peter Mello. He yes. went to live in Canada. He did the PM show. That's quite right. And after re relocating to Canada some years ago, he would send back news items for broadcasting. And in one of them, he mentioned a chef in one of the big hotels in Canada had an original rivet from the Titanic. This he had inherited from his granddad, who worked on the Titanic. On the ship's completion, each worker received one of the surplus rivets mounted on wood. <laughs> so tests on this rivet revealed the weakness of the material, and so a general assumption was made that materials used on Titanic must be inferior. The facts, however, tell a very different story. Another rumor is that the iceberg punched open a wide hole on Titanic's inferior quality hull, made brittle by the freezing water. This seems unlikely because a far greater volume of water would have entered the ship in a much shorter space of time, causing it to sink far more rapidly than two and a half hours. And then yet another theory evolved that maybe the rivets actually popped, creating a 100 meter long narrow aperture between the plating. Now this is supported by images of part of the aperture taken by Titanic wreck discoverer Robert Ballard. Fascinating footage he managed to get, didn't he, Jeremy, from, from the Titanic? Yes, and uh, the way he actually found the ship and what he had to do to coerce the Navy to assist him is another story all on its own. <laughs> right. A salvage expert decided to examine this rivet failure theory more closely, revealing some interesting facts. When the Titanic was constructed, powerful hydraulic riveters suspended from the giant gantry overhead enabled stronger steel rivets to be used. However, these five-ton machines were unable to operate at the angled bow of the ship. So here, riveting had to be done manually. Now, this meant that softer rivets made from wrought iron had to be used. Marine engineers informed the salvage expert that the iceberg exerted an estimated force of seven tons on the hull on collision. Now an exercise was done. Pieces of plating identical in thickness to Titanic's were attached with similar wrought iron rivets and pressure was applied to the plates at the riveted joint. The rivets actually failed before reaching five tons. And also of importance was the fact that the Titanic's actual wrought iron rivet examined under a micron microscope is revealed to be weaker than originally thought due to a higher slag or impurity content. This seems to confirm that the rivets failed, but we still can't be 100% sure as the majority of the damage is buried deep in the salt, which is three and a half kilometers down in the Atlantic. And probably we will never discover that, although we've found the Titanic, it's unlikely that we'll find those rivets. And now, um, let's have another music choice, um, Jeremy. And once again, we're going to have Enya. This is called Paint the Sky with Stars. 
I've included this one because can you imagine on that night with the lifeboats now sailing away from the area where the Titanic sank and all they had were the stars shining brightly in the sky on the smooth sea. It didn't stay smooth for long because the wind came up and it started whipping up uh, the sea quite a bit. But I think paint the sky with stars is a nice way of illustrating what it must have been like in those open lifeboats in the middle of the Atlantic. to set your heart up. 
That was Enya, Paint the Sky with Stars. And Jeremy, as you said, trying to create the image of sitting there in those lifeboats, dark, no moon, but the stars shining brightly and absolutely freezing cold. Now we come to the last part of the story, which, as you say, is laced with many different theories and perspectives just before the impact with the iceberg on that freezing night in the Atlantic. So I'm keen to hear what you're going to say now, Jeremy. Yes, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, aspect, which um, I was always uh, confused by until I read this article in the paper. But when Fred Fleet in the crow's nest alerted the bridge, calculations show that contact would be made in 40 seconds, a distance of approximately 500 meters. Yet at this late stage, the Titanic still has a good chance of avoiding the iceberg, bearing in mind that her trials revealed a responsive steering capability at 20 knots with an effective turning circle of 1,280 meters. And yet I could never understand why Titanic still hit the iceberg. Given her excellent maneuverability at 20 knots, clearly visible in photos taken during her sea trials. In other words, Titanic should have missed the iceberg by a substantial margin. Mm -hmm. Then an article appeared in The Guardian in 2010 by novelist Louise Patton. She was the granddaughter of second officer Charles Lightoller, the most senior officer to survive the sinking. Louise says that after the collision, the officers convened and agreed not to divulge what had happened on the bridge before impact. In the interests of officers keeping their jobs, as well as the White Star Line avoiding crippling lawsuits, and the dismissal of an insurance payout if the truth got out. These facts were told by Charles Lightoller to Louise's grandmother just before he died, and what he revealed to her makes perfect sense to me, although hotly denied by many, as well as the family of Quartermaster Hitchens, the gentleman who was at the helm. Now bear in mind the Titanic was launched at a time when the world was moving from sailing ships to steamships, all the senior officers on Titanic had originally trained on sailing ships, and on sailing ships they steered by what is known as tiller orders, which means that if you want to go one way, you push the tiller the other way. Oh, yes, yes. Can you believe it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't words, tell me that's what happened. <laughs> so if you want to go left, you push right. It sounds counterintuitive now, but that is what tiller orders were. Whereas with rudder orders which is what steamships used, it's like driving a car. You steer the way you want to go. It gets more confusing because even though Titanic was a steamship, at that time on the North Atlantic, they were still using tiller orders. Incredibly, tiller orders were continued being used right up until 1928. Gosh, that seems ridiculous almost. 
Okay, so this is what Lightola revealed to his wife, Louise Patton's grandmother. The order harder starboard was given, as well as for engines to be reversed. Therefore, First Officer Murdoch gave the command in tiller orders, but Quartermaster Hitchens, having trained on steamships, in a panic applied rudder orders. They only had about 40 seconds to change course, and by the time Murdoch spotted Hitchens' mistake and erroneously tried to rectify it, they had gobbled up crucial closing distance. Now, if you go back to the incident involving a serious collision between the Olympic and the battlecruiser Hawk, it is well documented that Quartermaster Hunt, at the helm of this battleship, applied rudder orders when given tiller orders. Although not cast in stone, this perspective is another of those series that continues to keep the Titanic legend alive. Now, in 1986, a year after Dr. Robert Ballard discovered the Titanic wreck, he put it in a nutshell comparing a modern-day parallel, the 1986 Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. He stated that in both cases there was an unjustified over-reliance on technology as well as an underestimation of natural elements. This led to negligence by those in high command. So it seems there are still lessons to learn from Titanic. There are. I mean, thanks to the Titanic sinking, all sorts of things were brought into law, weren't they? That's right. I mean, this this theory of the tiller and um, the, rudder. the rudder is interesting because, as you say, had they given the right order, it would have missed. But you have another theory, Jeremy, that if it hit the iceberg head on, it wouldn't have done as much damage. It probably wouldn't have sunk had it hit the iceberg head it wouldn't, on. It wouldn't have sunk because they would have had about uh, two, maybe maximum three watertight compartments flooded. Mm -hmm. And uh, that meant that she would still stay afloat. But all the people in the bow of the ship would have been killed. Yes, of and, course, uh, of course. But then, of course, if she had collided head on, it would have definitely been a, uh, a case of negligence. Yes, true. So they'd have to try her. This turning circle as well fascinates me because, as you've said a few times, the turning circle was unique for such a huge ship to do it in such a short space of time. I don't know if it was unique, but I, I just know that the Titanic had a very um, sensitive reaction to the tiller mm -hmm. or the, the rudder. Yeah. Or the helm. Yes, the helm. <laughs> We're all getting <laughs> confused by tiller and rudder orders here. <laughs> but there are so many conspiracy theories, aren't there? There's one that it didn't actually hit an iceberg, it hit another ship. That's quite right. Uh, there's another one about a submarine being involved. I hadn't heard that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But whatever happened, it sank most unexpectedly and most spectacularly, perhaps proving that no matter how technologically perfect we are in nature, has the final say. Well, they say that when the Titanic sank, it was the end of the age of innocence. Oh, there's a thought. <laughs> Gosh. Yes. And as the Titanic went down famously, what did the band play? Nearer my God to thee. Right. And they went down with the ship. So let's end our discussion on the Titanic, which um, set sail 109 years ago this week and sank on the 14th of April with Isalonisti playing the sort of instruments that would have been heard on the Titanic, this version of Nero, My God to Thee. Jeremy Day, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure, Rodney. Thank you.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. FMR 101.3